Christians. And over the last several weeks, we have looked at what mutual subjection looks like. Subjection is very simply relinquishing our own rights to someone else. And we've taken a look at how wives are to subject themselves to their husbands. We've looked at how husbands are to to subject, subject themselves to their wives. And now as we finish out the remaining parts of this topic, we look at how children and parents subject themselves to one another and employees and employers would subject themselves to one another as well. You would pick up in uh, chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 9. And here's what God's word says to us today. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. One of the great realities that you and I have to come to terms with is simply this, is that there is always going to be a role in a relationship of authority and submission. Always everywhere, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, there is always going to be some form of authority and subjection that is a part of our everyday lives. What I know about myself and what I have learned from all the people that I've known as a Christian is that we almost always resist and resent authority that is placed over us regardless of who it is or how worthy they might be because you and I by nature want to do our own thing. We think we know what is best and we want to do what we want to do simply because that's what we want to do. What's so remarkable about this passage of Scripture and even backing up into Ephesians chapter 5 is that this idea of subjection within the relationships that exist within the body of Christ is such a new idea, such a far-reaching impact on lives and on relationships. And as we look specifically between parents and children and slaves and their masters or employers and employees, we see this expressed once again. So we're going to look at this in four major sections. The first one is, very simply, a child's subjection. Now, a child here refers to offspring, not simply one who is under the roof of your house. When a child is dependent upon the parent, then these instructions are to apply in a different and in a more serious manner. When the child leaves the home, they apply to a much lesser degree. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through this. So the first form of subjection we look at is a child's subjection. Number one, to obey. A child is to obey, and that means to listen to. Verse 1 simply says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I would have to guess that the whole idea of selective listening was birthed in the very first child. I didn't hear you. What, what did you say? What did you mean by that? I misunderstood. Have you ever heard that as a parent? 
Yeah, you have. And you go, how did you not hear me? I was standing two feet away from you and said very clearly, this is what I want you to do. Well, it's the process of rebelliousness. It is selective hearing. It is, I don't want to do that because I don't want to relinquish my rights to you. So obedience has to do with our actions. And the scripture is very clear. Children, you are to obey your parents. Why? Because God says so. Isn't that the worst response you ever hear from your parent? Why do I have to do that? Because I said so. Well, that's not a reason. Well, I'm sorry, but it really is a reason. It's a reason because that's what God says. God says that you are to obey your parents. So as a parent gives instruction, at least in my mind, there are two key components to this. Letter A is a parent gives instruction in order to provide. It is to provide for their well-being. It is to provide in such a way that their needs are adequately met. For example, if you get up in the morning and you want to get a Snickers bar and a Coke for breakfast, your parent's going to say, that's not what you're going to eat. I want to provide for you something that is more nourishing and better for you, right? Parents give instruction in order to provide. Secondly, letter B, parents give instruction in order to protect. Now, it's obvious when mom and dad say, don't run across the street without looking because you might get hit by a car. But when mom and dad said you're not going to date that individual because that's not the right person for you, you go, well, wait a minute. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, I'm your parent. Well, that's not a very good reason. Well, I'm sorry it is because God says obey your parents. It's tough being a kid, isn't it? (laughs) Here's the deal, because all that we talk about in terms of children subjecting to parents It actually instructs in both directions. So when parents don't require obedience, they are neglecting their responsibility. Have you ever been someplace where you hear a parent say, Johnny, I'm telling you, you need to come here. I'm going to count to three and you better be here. Johnny, one, and Johnny's not moving. Two, and Johnny's not moving. Doesn't hear him at all. Two and a half, Johnny's still not persuaded. Two and three quarters, Johnny, I'm really serious. Wait until your father gets home. And Johnny never responds. There's never any requirement to obey. So parents, when you give instructions, when you ask your children to do things, you must require their obedience or you are neglecting your responsibility. You see, parents are stewards of children for a little while. God has given you these children to manage them, to bring them up in such a way that when they go out on their own, they will live a life that is worthy and pleasing to the Lord. Parents stand in the gap between God and their children. They are on loan, if you will. The child isn't capable of having a mature faith in God, and so it's the parent's responsibility to require obedience in such a way that prepares them to obey God when they are out on their own. You know, I've read this, and I've actually heard this in the lives of kids, is that most often kids will adopt a view of God that is consistent with the view they have for their parents. Restrictive, harsh, permissive, no bark behind the no bite behind the bark that's what kids learn about god when they watch mom and dad in the home 
Requiring obedience is a part of, is, is one of a parent's primary responsibilities. When disobedience isn't met with discipline, then children learn the wrong message. We could read in Hebrews chapter 11, where we, we see God talking, we see the writer talking about God disciplines his children, so they don't believe that they are illegitimate. It is a parent's responsibility to instruct their children and to discipline their children when they disobey. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says that obeying your children, excuse me, children obeying your parents is right in the Lord. That means that it is just, it is correct, and it is righteous. It means that it is just as it should be. It is just the way that God designed. So when your parents are asking you to do something, kids, you don't get mad at them. You go back to the Word and you say, God, I don't like it, but I have to agree that it is right. And I will willingly submit myself to their request. That's what it means to subject. I relinquish my rights for someone else. Now, when a child leaves the home, the instruction that a parent gives and the the obedience a child applies changes dramatically. When your child leaves the house, he's on his own, you can't make him turn off the TV at 11 o'clock. You can't make him be in the house by midnight. You just don't have the ability to do that. You cannot discipline them for not abiding by the rules. They were a part of your home and they were there. I have one grown child. I give advice and he chooses to do what he wants to do. So the responsibility... The impact changes, but because these kids are on loan to us for such a short amount of time, we have a very small window to impart in them a willingness to trust that mom and dad really want to provide and to protect. They're not trying to ruin my day, take all the fun, or be a big killjoy. They really do have my best interest at heart. Now, as you have adult children, you know how that dispensing of advice goes, right? Well, kind of like when they were kids, in one ear and out the other. And eventually they come back and say, you know, Dad, you were right. I should have listened. <laughs> and then you pick yourself up the floor and you say, well, next time, maybe you'll listen a little bit better, right? All right, so children are to obey. Number two, children are to honor their parents. To honor means to value highly. We, so what we see in verse 2, honor your father and your mother. It means to hold in high regard It means to have a level of respect for them that you're just not going to have for anybody else. So here's something that we need to think about as parents, is that this whole idea of honoring, of your children giving to you honor, is letter A, honor is required. It is a parental position. We are to give honor to our parents because they are our parents. But you probably know that the honor that you have extended to your parents has a lot to do with the kind of parents you had. The other side of that is, letter B, that honor is earned. It is earned through parental practice. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. This idea of of a child giving honor back to a parent, a parent can either enhance the honor that they will be given, or they will impede the honor that a child will give. Giving a child everything he wants and providing no boundaries and no restrictions, there never being consequences for disobedience, 
does not create an environment of obedience and honor. Parents have to take their responsibility to instruct very, very seriously this whole idea of providing and protecting and backing up with consequences the expectations that you set. I want to read this where I came across this, across this in my preparation, and this really stunned me when I read this, but as I thought about it, I, th- I had to agree that, yes, it's absolutely correct. This is something from the Minnesota Crime Commission. Here's what they say. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Wait a minute. Listen, every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are Both are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's a lot of truth in this expression. We are all born steeped in sin. We want what we want because we want it. And when we don't get it, what do we do? We cry until someone meets that need. And if children are not taught the right way, they will grow up to be delinquents. You know, I also saw, and I don't know how old the the mention of this statistic was, but in the last 10 years or so, within the United States of America there were an estimated 8 million assaults on parents by their children, many of which ended in murder. Many of those assaults were simply the result of a parent not giving to the child what they wanted or seemingly being too harsh or inconsistent in the way they ruled their home. Can you imagine such a thing? Why does that take place? Why in an affluent home where a kid has everything he wants, would he find the response to injuring his parents the right one, because we are all born sinful and we need to be instructed in the right way to go. When you look at the environments that are that are when you look at the environments that these criminals are living in, you see the absolute lack of morality and instruction, don't you? You think how could how could somebody do such a thing? How could a kid that lives on First Avenue shoot a kid who lives on Second Avenue just because he lives on a different street? That's the environment. That's the environment of somebody who, in the absence of any kind of absolute standard or instruction. You say, well, that's just a limited example. Well, I don't really think that it is because we are all born steeped in our sin and we need to be taught the right way to go. Children need to be taught to honor and obey their parents because it doesn't come naturally. I've said this before. Who amongst you taught your children to lie before they learned to lie? Who taught your child to bite or to pinch or to hit when they'd never seen that in their home before? It just comes natural. And a kid who has no restraints and no borders and no boundaries and no instruction is at the mercy of his own heart. 
Proverbs 4, 1 through 4 reads like this. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. This really expresses the way it ought to be in a Christian home. As a child has been taught Christian virtue, Christian activity, Christian standards, those children teach it to their own children. And those children teach it to their own children. That is the way that it is supposed to go. We shape our kids by what we model and by what we teach. Prayerfully, they will listen and they will hold fast to what they've been taught by us as parents and then replicate them in the lives of their own kids. Now, adult children often combine honoring their parents with the same idea of obeying their parents. Adult children can often feel trapped in doing what the parents think they should do as a sign of honor and respect to their parents. And there are boundaries in what is supposed to take place in the life of a grown child and a parent. When you leave the house that you were raised in, and when you are married, you are to leave your father and your mother, and you are to cleave to your mate. So the idea here is that as an adult, you show honor to your parents, not by obeying their instructions or living your life in the way that they think you should, but you honor them by living a life that is honorable, and when it comes time, you provide for them if they are in need of that. I think one of the sweetest expressions of honor I've ever seen is a mom or dad who is now being taken care of in the home by one of their children. Not everybody can do that. Sometimes the physical needs, sometimes the mental difficulties are beyond our abilities. But we have, for the most part, cast the elderly into these assisted living centers because we just don't want to be bothered. And it's a tragedy to read the statistics about how few of these moms and dads are visited by their children because we just don't want to bother anymore. If you want to honor your parent and you are an adult, live an honorable life, and when it comes time, you care for them in the way they did for you for the 20-odd years that you were dependent upon them. Let's look at the result of this obedience and honor in the life of of a child. Verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so the first result here is a quality of life. That is what's meant by the phrase that it may be well with you. This original phrase, this promise was made to the nation of Israel, and it involved many tangible things. It involved physical land, it involved earthly blessings, it involved um, space and protection that was afforded by a strong national entity. So this reference that Paul is making here shows that this also extends to believers today. Through the blessing, though the blessings may not always be tangible, we may not, always, may not always see those blessings. A family where children and parents live in mutual love and submission will have rich, God-given harmony and satisfaction that many other families 
can never know. Have you ever known a family whose life was just an actual, just absolute tumult, tumult, just problems and friction and frustration and outbursts and kids who are staying out all night and parents who aren't coming home because they don't want to deal with it. The family is just absolutely in shambles. Have you known any families like that? I have. I've sat down with them before. I've tried to help them understand what's going on. And I'll tell you, it's very, very difficult. But the reality is, is that where there is obedience and honor, where there's discipline and consequence, and when it's applied in the right way, families are spared this kind of heartache that takes place in so much of our culture today. And yes, even within the Christian culture, families are in absolute chaos because Children aren't being instructed. There's no obedience. There is no honor. So there is a quality of life that is afforded to those that honor and obey their parents in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Letter B, there is also a quantity of life that you may live long on the earth. Now, one of the famous quotes that I've heard, I think it was by Bill Cosby, was you're going to do or I'm going to take you out. I brought you into the world and I can take you out, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what Moses was talking about here with the, with the dispensation of the Ten Commandments. The idea is that the believer who honors his parents can know that his lifetime will be the full measure that God intends. The full measure that God intends. We all have a limited number of days. Our days are numbered, but some lives are cut short because of the life that they live. When you look, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, you see the, the healthy, functioning lives of Ananias and Sapphira, and they sinned and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They were stricken dead. I believe that they were disciplined for their sin, and yet they did not live the full days that God had intended for them. You also see the same thing taking place in the church at Corinth, where Paul says, Some of you are asleep, i.e., dead, because of the kind of lives. That you are living. So the expectation here is that to fulfill this command is the same for husbands and wives as it is for parents and for their children. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Kids, if you're still under your parents' house and you're still abiding by their rules, you would do well to submit your life to the Lord, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that He gives to you the capacity to obey. And give honor to your parents because it does not come naturally. So we see a child's subjection. Number two, we see a parent's subjection to their children. We'll see both a positive and a negative command expressed in here. The first one is the negative. Don't make your children angry. Verse 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The NIV says, do not exasperate your children. So it's really interesting that this is addressed to the fathers. It doesn't mean that the mother is not incapable of provoking a child to anger. Isn't that right? Mom can do a pretty good job of that as well. But this is addressed to fathers, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that in this culture that Paul was writing, fathers were accountable to nobody. Absolutely nobody. There was a Roman law called Patria Potestas, And it allowed a father to cast out of his home a child at any time with no questions asked. 
He could sell the child off as a slave. He could give the child over to prostitution if he wanted to do that. Could you imagine living in such a culture? Can you imagine reading these words in this culture where the Word of God, where Paul the Apostle is saying, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. At the birth of a child, it was brought to the feet of a Roman father, and if he picked it up, he accepted it and it was brought into his home. If he didn't pick it up, if he turned and walked away, the child would be sold into slavery or into prostitution. Unimaginable. So these are the words that we're reading, and these are the words that are just absolutely shocking to the culture that they were in. But the idea of disowning a child simply because you can is unfathomable. It's just beyond comprehension. Yet, you know, today in our country, there are more foster children than there are homes for. Kids that have been cast away for one reason or another because it's inconvenient or because a parent is unwilling. And it's an absolute travesty that it takes more training and more certification to be a barber than it does to be a parent in the United States of America. Anybody can be a parent. I can't go set up a shingle and invite you to come in and let me cut your hair because I have not been certified to do that. So our culture is inundated with not only these families, but these homes where these kids are just not being cared for. So by not refusing to give to your child everything that they want is not necessarily what Paul is talking about in terms of provoking them to anger. There are some things that parents can do that will provoke or exasperate their children. You can smother your child in such a way that you don't allow them to make any decisions. You don't allow them to think for themselves. There's overly restriction on where they can go and what they can do. It's not trusting them to do things on their own. It's called a helicopter parent. And you just simply smother your child with your presence in such a way that the child resents even your being there. We have to let our children go. We have to train them so that they can function as adults when it's time for them to leave our home. We can make unreasonable demands on our kids, expecting more than is reasonable or more than they are capable of. I remember when my kids were little, and I would ask them to help me do certain things, and they just didn't have the motor skills to turn a screwdriver to, to roll a paintbrush uh, or a paint roller on a wall. And, and I could get frustrated with them because I was asking them to do that, but I was actually asking them to do more than they were capable of, not more than they were willing to do. So by making these unreasonable expectations, we can provoke our children to anger. We can establish petty rules that are just impossible to follow. We can show favoritism to one child over the other and do things for them and spend time with them and shower them with love and attention that we don't to all of our children. We can push our kids towards unreasonable accomplishments because you want it more than your child actually wants it and your kids can be destroyed by this pressure. You know, in the professional, excuse me, in the, in the junior sports arena, there are many, many, many children who resent their parents because they've been pushed to be a professional athlete. Or they've been pushed to be a concert pianist. Or they've been pushed to be the next great doctor. We have to be careful that we don't overdo it 
and helping provide guidance for our kids. We can use love as a tool to control or manipulate, to reward when they've when they've succumbed to our petty desires. There can be consistent criticism in the absence of any kind of compliment that will provoke our children to resent us. As kids experience this over and over and over and over in their lives, it can lead to the resentment and the anger and the bitterness that ends in some kind of a physical assault, some kind of an altercation, but at the very least, the absence of honor and obedience. So that's the negative command here. The second, excuse me, the positive command here is to nurture them in the Lord. Verse 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In order to bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, letter A, we must correct them. There must be correction with our children. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Not once in a while. Not when it's been really embarrassing. Not when it's really serious, but discipline comes diligently. Letter B, not only is there uh, correction, but there is instruction. Children must be taught. They don't necessarily learn it on their own. The great declaration for the Jew, uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's a portion of that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them Excuse me. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and be on your gates. We are to instruct our children intentionally in the way of the Lord. The book of Proverbs is filled with practical instruction that is easy to read and communicate to our children. We cannot teach, however, what we ourselves do not possess. That's why it's imperative for parents to walk with the Lord, to love the Lord, to give themselves to the Lord, to seek His help in raising parents. And oh, by the way, parents, you cannot subject yourself to your children unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's imperative that we learn that important principle. Very quickly, we're going to conclude here. Uh, Number three, as we look now at an employee's subjection. Verse five, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And so slavery in the Bible times was common, and it was sometimes abused. In Paul's culture, it was abused by the Romans. A slave had no rights. They were considered commercial commodities. They were considered beneath the animals, and very clearly, they were mistreated. Romans had concluded that work was beneath them, and so whenever they would capture a new people group, they would bring them back as slaves. That kind of slavery or servitude is always condemned in Scripture. We read in Exodus 21.16, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Forced slavery is like a kidnapping, and Scripture always condemns that kind of servitude. European and American slave trade falls within that category. It was forced Labor. It still exists in very small pockets of our world today, but by and large, it is extinct. Praise the Lord for that. But also in Paul's day and in the Roman culture, there was another kind of slavery, which I alluded to, called servitude. 
This was a very practical way of dealing with offenses that took place between individuals. For example, if you stole something and had no ability to pay it back, then you would enter into an arrangement of servitude until you could repay or make restitution of that which you owed. If you were in debt and had no ability to pay that off, you could enter into an arranged servitude in order to pay back what you owed. At some point in that relationship, you would have the option to stay on and to be a bond servant, and you just kind of lived with that family, were an extended part of that family, but you worked for them. So Israelites were not allowed to enslave one another. They could buy foreign slaves, but they had to treat them fairly, and there are many sections within Scripture that, that dictate how they were to be treated. A slave who, who fled from an abusive master was always granted asylum, and slaves were given their freedom every 50 years at the Jubilee. So Israelites were free from this slavery or this servitude after six years and were then sent away with severance pay. So when Paul is addressing the slaves in this context, he is talking about those in servitude, not those that would have been forced into a relationship or an arrangement that they were not talking about. Because of that, the application for us is we're talking about employers and employees. Now, in no way am I trying to make light of or not deal with forced slavery. I just don't believe it's the truest context of what's being dealt with here. Scripture always condemns forced slavery in the way that we have already discussed. So we see the instruction here. Employees are to, number one, the way they subject themselves to the employers is to obey. It says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And so as an employee, we are to obey our superiors in all things at all times, not just when we agree or when we like it. Now, there is an exception to that. If you are in a working relationship where you are being asked to do immoral or unethical things, by all means, you need to find another job. If you're being asked to do things that violate your conscience as a Christian, you need to give great consideration to finding another form of employment. When we're being asked or expected to do unbiblical or moral or unethical things, this requirement to obey is then set aside. But there has to be some idea of what those things are going to be when you enter into a job relationship. Otherwise, when you are confronted with it, it's time to get out because disobeying God is never okay when you're just simply doing your job. It doesn't work that way. There's reference here to masters in the flesh, and so what he's talking about here is this earthly arrangement of authority and submission. So uh, employees have this earthly authority over top of them, their supervisor, and that it is a, an, it is in the flesh, meaning it is a physical, temporary kind of authority relationship that takes place. But it's consistent with what God has created where there is always going to be some kind of an authority and some form of submission to those who are in authority over top of us. So we show, excuse me, we subject ourselves to our employers by obeying. Number two, in the same way as with a child, we show honor and respect. Verse five says, with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that you're cowering in fright. And some of you would say, I've had a boss like that. I've had to obey and show honor 
fearing for my job, fearing for my well-being. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not what it means. But to show honor and respect with fear and trembling is it means you're eager to please, that you want to do the job well, that you want to just, you don't want to just satisfy the expectations, but you want to go beyond that and you want to do a job that is exceptional in every way. The contrast to that is that we don't talk bad about our supervisors. We don't criticize our supervisors. And we don't argue with or challenge the authority of our supervisors. That's how we can show respect. Number three, it is to be sincere in heart. Verse five simply says, in the sincerity of your heart. It is doing a good job. It is giving it a hearty effort. It is doing the right thing, not just when someone is looking, but doing the right thing even when you're on your own and no one can see. We're not to do our job well hypocritically or superficially, but we're to do it with the sincerity in our hearts. Number four, we are to subject ourselves to our employers for God's glory. Last part of verse five and six, we subject ourselves, we obey, we show honor, respect as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. And so the execution of our following, even though it is to an earthly supervisor, it is to be done just as it would be to Christ. We see Paul repeat the same sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so one of the things that can help in this is that view your earthly job as a means of ministry where you can reflect your love for the Lord, your sincerity in your walk with the Lord by being a good example, by being an exemplary employee so you don't bring any kind of negative thoughts about who you are as a Christian. And so it is a form of ministry. Your work is a part of your witness and your testimony as a child of God, and it does affect how you are viewed and whether or not you are respected. One of the saddest things that I've seen in the secular jobs that I've had are quote-unquote Christians who curse like sailors, who argue and who rebel, and who really disgrace the name of Christ because they don't like the way they're being treated. And so this is part of what we can do. We see this as an idea of our ministry to the Lord and serving these people by being a good employee. Number five, this is the will of God. The last part of six and seven, doing the will of God from the heart, which is obeying and showing honor, sincerity of heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. So because God has ordained earthly authority, Our submission to this earthly authority is submission to him. Now notice the promise here that God gives to us in his word. The promise is God rewards. God rewards our faithful service to our employers. Verse 8 says, Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or flee. The reality is this. Your employer may never see He may never know. In the end, he may not even care what kind of employee you have been because you're disposable and someone else doesn't come in and fill your shoes very well. But when you honor God with your work, Scripture tells us that God is going to reward your efforts to please Him regardless of what your employer does. If we're working for the Lord and not working for the man, It will radically change the way we approach our job. 
It will radically change the way we view our job and the kind of affirmation we're going to need from our employers. We do our jobs for the Lord. We we subject ourselves to our employers as to the Lord, knowing that God sees and God ultimately will reward. The best way for us to subject ourselves to our employers is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lastly, number four, the employer's subjection to the employee. We see this in verse 9. Masters, do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, there likely were not a lot of masters within the church at this time. Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds among the working class, not among the elite. And those who had servants were amongst the elite. And it was a very difficult arrangement for many masters when they were in a church and in spiritual authority, someone who worked for them was actually over top of them as an elder or as an overseer or as a teacher. Very difficult arrangement for the master. But nonetheless, we do see this teaching to the master here or to the employer, and that is simply this, to do the same thing to the employee that you want them to do to you. So it is to obey and excuse me, to obey and please the Lord for God's glory. In the exercise of your authority, treat others as you would want to be treated. And number two, stop threatening. Don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your authority, but submit to the Lord because after all, you have the same master as the one that you employ. So that concludes our look at what it means to, to walk in subjection. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how easy it is for you to relinquish your right to someone else, whether it be your husband or your wife, whether it's to your employer, to your employee, to your child or to your parent, to the body of Christ as a whole. See, in the absence of respecting what God has established, there will be chaos. There will be friction. There will be far more fighting. There will be far less peace and harmony and unity in our relationships. So when we relinquish our rights to someone else, we are really relinquishing our rights to God because he's the one that has designed this. But the question is, what kind of relationship do we want with those in our world? Peaceful and harmonious? Or filled with friction and disagreement? For the most part, that will depend upon how full of the Holy Spirit we are and not full of our self-will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the radical way it challenges us and convicts us of how different we need to be. God, we don't always like the authority that we are expected to submit ourselves to, but we have to agree that you have established that. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that we can never fully submit as we should unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So I pray, Father, that we would take that instruction very seriously, that we would recognize what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It means to obey you. It means to confess our sins to you. It means to submit our lives to you. It means to extend and grant forgiveness, to receive and grant forgiveness when wronged. God, I pray that within this local body of believers, we would be an example of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you're able to do all that you've asked us to do. 
as we give ourselves to you. Would you deepen our desire to live a life fully submitted to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.